0: This is The Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday, 10 to 2, on 980 CKNW and through the Radio
1: Player app. Our hot question of the day today has to do with your privacy. So the widow of Surrey murder victim, Paul Bennett, says that her husband's killer may have been caught by now, she thinks, if the city had more CCTV cameras. Would you support having that in your community? Do you think you'd be okay with that? Or do you think too many violation of your privacy... That's our hot question of the day. So you say yes, you're for public safety or no, it invades privacy. Go to SimiSara980 on Twitter to cast your vote. You can also go to at CKNW or email me simi at cknw.com or call our buzzline line 604-331-BUZZ. We're going to be talking more about that later in the show. But Rhonda's already weighing in. Rhonda emailed me and said in capital letters, yes absolutely. More CCTV. She said two of her neighbors have security cameras that encompass their property. Both asked if it was okay as their cameras capture part of our driveway. And she said our answer, absolutely. Yes. And capture as much of the front of our home as possible. Uh, all right. See, she's okay with it. But are you okay with more CCTV out there seeing you coming and going, going around your neighborhood? Send me at cknw.com or cast your vote online. Semi Sarah 980. Well, we've got a lot to talk about on the show today. We're keeping an eye on the manhunt situation, of course, first and foremost. Not a lot uh, that the RCMP can say that they've made progress on in the last 48 hours or so. There were high hopes right after the whole York landing situation where members of the Bear Clan Patrol said that they believed that they had spotted the two suspects, Cam McLeod and Barsh Migelski. Well, that is not how the RCMP feel. They have not been able to substantiate that credible tip. And just in the past few minutes, RCMP in Manitoba have now tweeted that the heavy police presence in York Landing has been withdrawn and policing resources in that community will return to normal, says the RCMP thanks the community for their patience and understanding. That's a big change and a big shift in how things are going. Uh, There was a lot of indication and hope about perhaps these two suspects had moved, and this was the break that, you know, maybe law enforcement was looking for doesn't seem to have shaken out that way at all. It did result, I think, in a greater focus on the area surrounding Gillam, Manitoba. RCMP, though, kind of reinforcing now uh, their efforts in Manitoba as well. We wanted to get an update on that situation uh, to talk about what is going on there. Global News reporter Diana Foxall is with us now. Diana, thanks for being here. No problem. Good morning. Good morning. So this is a bit of a, almost like a retrenchment, I guess, from RCMP.
2: Yes, uh, I have to agree with everything you've said. To some people, this seems to feel like the wind has kind of gone out of the sails a little bit, like we're not back at square one, but maybe a little bit further back than we'd like now, having RCMP return those resources to Gillum that they'd sent to York Landing. Uh, As you mentioned, there was a ton of hope after this this uh, confident tip that RCMP received, but unfortunately it wasn't substantiated. So they're now going back to Gillum and just combing the area, combing all the wilderness around the community in the hopes of finding these two suspects.
1: We've heard, Diana, how dense, I guess, you know, the brush is and the area around Gillum. But then we've also heard about, well, no, there's trails through there, there's trapper trails, hunter trails, and that kind of thing. Like, how well do we know the area in and around there?
2: We do know that uh, regardless of those odd trails and, uh, I mean, you could get along a little bit easier on the rail line perhaps, it is a pretty tricky area to navigate and, of course, if the suspects are hiding in this area, they certainly wouldn't want to be kind of out in the open. It's pretty likely they would have gone sort of a little bit further into the brush to stay away from police. Uh, and they're not actually, if they're around that area, they're not just hiding from police. There are plenty of animals around. There's bears, there's wolves, there's cougars. Um, so they would want to be remaining pretty undercover yeah. from both people and animals. Um, but we know that just generally having a look at some of the video footage we've seen, some of the photos we've seen from planes flying over the area it is pretty mucky there's a lot of sort of swampland, a lot of muskeg uh, it's not all solid ground and uh, of course plenty of forest to go through as well so if you're not accustomed to that area it's certainly somewhere that would be pretty difficult to survive uh, unassisted for a week
1: right now so now we're hitting the one week mark of this kind of intensive search in that Gillum area what's it like for the community this must be difficult for them
2: Yes, we've heard from community members up in Gillum, as well as York Landing, that this is something they'd just like to see over with as soon yeah. as possible. For those up in Gillum, uh, again, last week was really the first time they'd ever had to lock their doors and keep everything shut overnight. Um, and then just yesterday in York Landing, when police were investigating there... RCMP urged the community basically just to go into lockdown to stay inside to lock those doors those windows Um, so it's certainly a very tense environment while police were patrolling there and then now they're back in Gillum kind of with renewed vigor so uh, it's just something that the communities would like to see come to a peaceful end as soon as possible
1: right so have you been able to see like what kind of resources we're talking about here is this a very big
2: police presence this is a very big police presence. They have brought in police dog services, they brought in air services. So they got helicopters up there. Uh, They've brought in the drone, they have the armoured vehicle, they have the tactical team. uh, And then of course, the Royal Canadian Air Force was also brought in a few days ago, they have sent two planes up there, the Aurora and the Hercules. um, The Aurora has special thermal imaging capabilities. So that's an extra boost for them. So plenty of resources, both police and military up in the area searching all all over near Gillum and uh, just all the wilderness around there.
1: Is there still, do you think that level of intensity, Diana, with this as well? Like what are people in Manitoba saying at this point? Obviously everybody just wants it to be over, but are you, are they surprised that this
2: hasn't had more progress? I don't know. Um, Northern Manitoba is, is vast. It's very remote. Um, The reality is the suspects there's a lot of options to hide and given that they did have such a big head start on police um i think we all know that rcmp are doing the best job they can uh they're releasing as much information to us as possible so they say uh i'm sure they have more information that they're not telling the public that they're kind of using for their investigative purposes but uh people around here certainly very aware of this kind of a little more on alert even here in southern manitoba than they would normally be but just hoping that, again, our CMP are able to find these two suspects and uh, do so peacefully. That's
1: so true. Diana, thank you for your
2: time. You're very welcome.
1: That's Diana Foxall, Global News reporter in Winnipeg, updating us on the Manitoba search. Get an update now on our ride-hailing situation here in this province. We don't have enough taxis for everybody to get a ride. Those resulted in long lineups. Now for, I guess, years, I was going to say, is years an exaggeration? No, it is not an exaggeration. For years now, we have talked about bringing in more choices for people. and That would mean ride-hailing apps. We know that Uber and Lyft are kind of in the process of doing that, right? Last week, we talked about how both of those companies uh, are encouraging people to get that Class 4 designation so that they can get up and running and hire people when this fall they expect to be able to do that. But there is a company that kind of has been doing this already. It's called Cater. It's been operating as a quasi kind of ride hailing service for some months. You may have seen those cars around. I've seen a couple of them. Well, the company has announced that it will soon be applying to operate as a full ride-hailing service this fall. The CEO of Cater, Scott Larson, joins us now to talk more about this. Scott, thank you very much for being here. Thank
3: you, Simi. I appreciate it.
1: First of all, how does Cater operate? What is it exactly?
3: So right now we operate as a, uh, as a hybrid model, which is a combination of a service licensed under a taxi model because that's the only way that we could officially launch here earlier this spring but the service only available through the app. So you log in with the app, of course, similar to what people have used before, at your starting point, your destination, and within a few minutes, you'll be able to see a car come towards you in five minutes, four minutes, three minutes, similar to what everyone else has used around the world.
1: Okay, so then how are you different from Uber or Lyft at this point?
3: Because of the current regulation model in in D.C., the only way that we could actually start to operate launch earlier this spring was under a taxi license so our 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 cars are officially licensed as taxis but the services are only available through the app so it is a bit of a hybrid model that we think combined the best of both and in fact allowed us to start offering the service in uh end of march
1: do all of your drivers have a class 4 license
3: all of our drivers have a class 4 license yes
1: and how many cars do you have on the road right now
3: right now we have 35 cars in bc uh in vancouver
1: in and Vancouver. that's just in the Vancouver area?
3: That's just in the Vancouver area right now.
1: And do you plan on expanding?
3: Well, we plan on, on being part of the ride-hailing service as it gets uh, rolled out later this fall. So this is the key thing that we announced earlier today, which is we're going to be expanding our model. It was, always, it was always the vision, but we're making it, uh, we're making it formal today, which is we're going to keep our 35 cars operating in Vancouver that we already have, and we're going to be part of the ride-hailing process as it gets rolled out later this fall.
1: Now, Scott, how are you allowed as cater to pick and choose which taxi regulations then that you follow? Like normal taxis would also, you know, be able to pick up people on the street. How can you choose not to do that?
3: Well, we can, with our current cars, we can offer whatever type of service we wanted. And and in fact, we allowed people to um, call for for a car, call for a, a ride through the app. And so it's it's licensed as a taxi, if you will, in terms of pricing and some of the other safety features that the uh, government mandates on taxis. But in terms of the service and, and uh, how, you, how you dispatch a car, if you will, it's only through the app. It's, it's, uh, it's not picking and choosing. It's, it's providing the best service that people are looking for.
1: So are you saying then there's no actual regulation that says, oh, you have to also be available to pick up people on the street?
3: Yeah, there are no regulations that say that. If, if, if um, a taxi doesn't want to pick someone up, of course, this has been one of the issues in the past. They've chosen not to. The difference that we've been able to offer, which is once someone uh, got in the car or once the ride was booked, the driver couldn't turn it down. And so it, um, it, it solves some of the problems, I think, that people, particularly in Vancouver, have experienced in the past.
1: Now, have so did you, like, you've got 35 licenses then, but you've got like taxi licenses.
3: These are taxi licensed vehicles available through the app. Yeah, that's right.
1: Okay, so essentially, those licenses could actually be taxis. Like we could have 34 more taxis on the road if we didn't have cater.
3: Well, I think the government might be looking at the number of taxi licenses that they're going to have here in the Lower Mainland. That's a separate conversation. We're not part of that. Um, so I don't, I don't know what the Passenger Transportation Board is, is going to do on that aspect. But we have 35.
1: Okay. Have you had a problem finding drivers then with all the requirements? Cause we heard last week that Uber and Lyft said, Oh, this is really onerous. How has cater found it?
3: We haven't had some of those issues. We've been working at this for the last six months, of course, putting together a driver pool. Uh, I know I've heard some of those reports from, from other people saying that they find this too onerous and class four and all the rest of it. We, we support it, to be honest, anything that improves safety for passengers is a good thing. Uh, anything that, um, you know provides a better experience and in our opinion, both for driver as well as passenger is a good thing. So we haven't we haven't had some of those issues that other people are talking about.
1: Now do you have any statistics for cater on usage? Like how many people are, are using this app?
2: Yeah,
3: so we're not getting too deep into that. We launched in a in a very closed beta earlier this spring. We opened it up a couple weeks after that. Uh, what we are saying that right now, over the last number of months the usage download as well as trips is growing at about 15% week over week. So the demand is there. The service level is good. I read every single comment that comes in. It's about 97% positive. So I think we're happy with those numbers and we're happy to see where it goes.
1: Okay. And so do you, um, do you know like how long the average wait time is? Like if you open it up and see, okay, I can, I can get a, a car. How long does somebody have to wait to get a car?
3: It depends on, on time of day where you are. Um, the goal is to always get a ride within six or seven minutes. Sometimes it's within two or three, and sometimes it might be within eight or nine minutes. But um, it depends a little bit on demand. And, and, you know, that's one of the things we kind of struggle with, of course, is getting getting rides faster. It's not unusual, but uh, it's it's usually in the six or seven-minute range.
1: Do you think that Cater then can compete against the big guys, the Uber and Lyft? We think we can.
3: Um, you know, Certainly, we have the driver pool, and we continue to 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 add add to that. I think the uh, the customer experience, the you know, the experience that people have when they when they take a ride is good. Uh, It's positive, and so we welcome it. To be honest, it's uh, we don't know what the exact regulations are going to look like when they get rolled out later this fall in terms of fleet size and a few of the other details. But uh, we're excited to see where it goes. And, And in fact, one of our mandates has been to use some of the existing infrastructure. Buses, um, shared car services, public transportation as part of how we move people around and so there is there are some things that differentiate us from the other people there as well.
1: Yeah, are you concerned about the competition for drivers though, right? Because y'all your drivers already have class four. Are you worried that people might go, well maybe I want to work for Uber or Lyft?
3: Well if there's demand there, if if there's demand there, then I think drivers will sign up and you know, if they need to get the class four they'll get it. And if they if uh, if there's demand for people wanting to get rides home or go from point A to point B, then for sure drivers will go through the time it takes, which isn't really that onerous. It's it's you know it's a couple hundred dollars and you have to take a test, but people will get it in order to uh, add this to the income and 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 be part of the gig economy. I don't I don't think it's it's reasonable to say that uh, class four is going to kill ride hailing. It hasn't in other jurisdictions. It uh, it adds another la- layer of um, safety for passengers, and, and it's, it's, you know, it's a small feature.
1: Okay, and so when is Cater going to be expanding then?
3: So uh, the process that the government has laid out is anybody can apply for a license, a transportation network license, in, in uh, August, and then they will announce who, who is accepted in September, and then any time after that, within a few weeks, time after that the service can be started to roll out so our plan here at cater is to uh, be part of that process applied certainly and begin to provide service throughout the lower mainland as well as other parts of, of BC midfall time frame
1: so it sounds like though Scott like this whole landscape when it comes to ride hailing is going to change in the next couple of months pretty quickly
3: it's certainly changing and it's it's overdue in our opinion it's overdue we're excited to be part of it we were we were glad that we were able to launch earlier this spring and to build up some market awareness and put together some of the data points that tech companies like us need. And most importantly, of course, provide the level of service that, that people are looking for. It is all going to change. It is all going to change this fall. I think companies are going to decide if they want to be part of it or not. Cater certainly will be. And so we look forward to that.
1: All right. Listen, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thanks, Amy. I appreciate
1: it. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's Scott Larson, the CEO of a company called Cater. All right, let's talk a little bit more about one of the stories that you've been hearing about in the news today. This has to do with an investigation involving Richmond RCMP and the Vancouver Police Department. It started with a shooting that happened last night in Richmond, sent a 35-year-old man to hospital with serious injuries. Richmond RCMP now looking for the public's help on this. But let's get some more details about exactly what happened and why the Vancouver police are also involved in this. Joining us now is Global News reporter Grace Key with the latest. Grace, thanks for being here.
4: Yeah, so the police are certainly reaching out to the public and asking for any witnesses or anybody with dash cam video. So it's a shooting that uh, possibly took place over a couple of different jurisdictions. So It was just before about 1020 last night when Richmond police did get uh, news or shots fired just at the Richmond center parking lot area, right by the Tim Hortons. So if anyone knows the area, that's the one right by number three road. So they got here, found a a 35 year old man suffering from uh, what appeared to be gunshot wounds. He was taken to hospital. So witnesses, on the scene, did report seeing a two-door silver sedan driving by and shot being fired by somebody inside that vehicle. So then, just after about 11.20 p.m., Vancouver police were called just to the 2100 block of Newport Avenue, and that's where they spotted a car that was on fire, and it does match the description of the car that was seen driving away from the Richmond shooting so that's something that they're obviously going to be taking a close look at so not at this point uh, you know confirmed or not definite that that is the car that was involved
1: but obviously it does match that right. same uh, description okay and they're saying this was a, a targeted shooting though but clearly a pretty public place grace
4: yeah, it certainly is. I mean, thankfully, it was just, you know, closing. It was it was 1020, so it wouldn't have been open at the time. But, yeah, a very public place. Now, they are saying it was targeted. They wouldn't specify, uh, you know, if it was gang-related or not, only saying as well that the victim is known to them.
1: Okay, all right. So then moving on to Vancouver Police Is this uh, clearly a bit of a high-profile case here as well, Grace? Because they didn't waste much time in going public with this.
4: Yeah, they uh, released something right away uh, and did want to obviously get the word out there as well that they are looking for witnesses, especially those with dash cam video, who would have been in that area last night.
1: Okay, so thank you very much for that, Grace. More information to come. Appreciate your time. All right. That is Grace Key, global news reporter, with the latest on that. So, any information, uh, contact Richmond RCMP or the Vancouver Police Department, as Grace explained. Well, did they copy the song or not? Well, a federal jury in California has concluded they did, that Katy Perry's 2013 single, Dark Horse, actually infringes on a song by a Christian rapper. That's Marcus Gray. He records under the name Flame. Now, he had sued Katy Perry and the producer, Dr. Luke, and others, claiming. Claiming that the song Dark Horse featured the same beat and the same instrumentals as his 2009 song Joyful Noise. We want to give you a little bit of a longer version of each song so you can decide this. So, we're wanting to hear both of them? First up, here is Katy Perry's song Dark Horse.
0: Here you are. You're gonna come to me. Here you are. But you better choose carefully. Cause I-
1: I can't tell you how often I quickly had to change the radio station when I heard that song cuz I've never been a fan of that. But yet that was a huge song for Katy Perry actually she was nominated for a Grammy for it as well. So is it too similar to this next song, Joyful Noise?
3: I love. Let's talk about it. Your boy's been a Christian quite a few years. Victory and faith, but I failed in my fears. I heard a lot of words
5: that have tickled many ears. That's why I praised God for the word that we adhere. The word became flesh, lived for 30 years. Died at 33, but after days
4: reappeared.
1: Sorry, I was just getting into it, actually, as it was going along there. So are those so similar that Katy Perry and Dr. Luke and the others should pay copyright royalties to uh, Flame, who did that song Joyful Noise. Well, this is a big question for the music industry. How many notes in a row do you have to have before you say, that sounds too similar to another song? Our guest, Oliver Hertzfeld, the Senior Vice President and Chief Legal Officer for Beanstalk. That's a leading global brand licensing agency. And we always like to ask him about this when stories like this pop up in the news. Oliver, thanks for being back with us.
6: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Now, we've asked you before, I think we talked to you before when it was the Robin Thicke case. What did yes. you think about this one when you heard these two songs?
6: Um, I can I can see the similarity in the beat, but their songs are just so different. So it really, uh, it, it, it ultimately is in the ear of the beholder, so to speak. Uh,
1: have we ever managed to figure out like how many notes do we use to determine if something is copied? Like, how do we know if something is a copy?
6: Um, A number of of, uh, people have previously suggested that it should be based on some kind of objective standard, like the number of notes. But I don't know if that's the best way of judging it. Like, for example, um, the I Love New York jingle is only four notes. And, you know, that's very distinctive. And if someone copied it, you know, the, the owners would feel aggrieved.
1: So does it
6: just depend on a case-by-case basis? It depends on a case-by-case basis. That's part number one. And part number two is that it's based on, as I mentioned before, the ear of the beholder. So you go and and find a jury and and, and they have to, you know, ordinary listeners, it's based on what ordinary listeners believe. It's not based on, you know, um, know, professors of music or or other, you know, experts in this. It's based on the actual uh, ordinary jury. And then there's, there's methods that they use and they to try to determine whether there was copying and it's kind of like a mathematical function of inverse relationship where the more access you had to, to the um, to the original recording, the less similar they have to be, and the more access that you had, um, the more access you had, the less similar they have to be, the less access you had, the more similar they have to be. So in this case, you know, Katy Perry and Dr. Luke claimed that they never even heard it before. So, you know, applying that standard, they would have to be more similar before you find um, a verdict of infringement.
1: Right. But on the other hand, then Marcus Gray had argued, no, no, they had opportunity to hear it. It had been nominated for a Grammy. So there would have been some attention there. And plus, they also did they not also play on uh, Katy Perry's previous kind of history as a Christian singer?
6: Yes, those are all, you know, those are all good arguments. And, you know, people make, make claims, but you don't. You know, you, you don't always know what to be true. So, so for example, in the ongoing Led Zeppelin uh, case, um, you know, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant originally claimed that they never heard um, Taurus by the band Spirit. But when, in the original trial, it came, you know, the conclusion was, yes, they did. They did hear it, even though they continue to deny it. They, they played together at, at, at several concerts and they right. certainly had opportunity to hear it. So people make claims and then you have to kind of like figure uh, sort through all the claims and come to your conclusions.
1: How can an artist uh, protect themselves from this?
6: Okay, so that kind of uh, links back to the prior time that we spoke, because it's really, really difficult. Um, we're moving from a situation where it's not just beats and instrumentals that, that you know, are subject to claims, but in the Robin Thicke uh, versus the estate of Marvin Gaye case, it was like a a musical vibe that was there accused of of stealing a vibe. And, and that case, you know, ultimately um, on on retrial was determined to, um, to find them, you know, to find them liable for the infringement. And they were ultimately held uh, obligated to pay 5.3 million in damages and, and 50% of all future royalties. So um, it's really difficult. And, and uh, the, you know, the internet that, you know, with all the sleuths on the internet that kind of, uh, Uh, ferret out the uh, similarities, it, it's it's harder to hide nowadays.
1: That, that's really hard, I think, I guessing for any industry, because this happens in movies, right, with scripts or, I mean, if, if you're a producer and someone is sending you unsolicited material, I'm guessing you probably don't want to look at that unsolicited material.
6: Yes, you want to, you know, we want to say, please don't submit it. I didn't open it, because uh, anytime you come up with a blockbuster, someone's going to say, I had that idea before and, and, and a lot of ideas are similar and similar. So, so the, you know, making the connection to music, you know, a lot of uh, chord progressions are the same. A lot of instrumentals are the same. A lot of beats are the same. There's, you know, you're, one plays off the other. And, uh, and there's been, there's been a number of cases throughout the years that, you know, have come up with all kinds of strange situations as a result of that, for example, um, George Harrison, My Sweet Lord, was oh. accused of infringing the chiffon, he's still fine. Yeah. And the trial came out that he subconsciously copied it. And then even stranger, you know, Ryan Tedder is the co-writer-producer for Kelly Clarkson's Already Gone. And he also did Beyonce's Halo. And a lot of people have noticed that they are very similar. They sound very similar. And so he, he denies it. He wrote both. And he, and he and as the writer of both he 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 says it's hurtful and absurd that I would be accused of you know selling the same thing for two different artists and overlapping so difficult when you deal with music similar to film that uh things play out over and over again and uh and similarities are are likely to occur.
1: We're talking about music similarity in light of this Katy Perry dark horse versus the song Joyful Noise case uh, that Katy Perry lost in court, along with her producers on that. I guess, Oliver, my question here is as well, how many original chords are left? You know, like there's going to be repetition in music, is there not?
6: There's always going to be repetition and there's always going to be lawsuits that result from it. Sometimes it's, you know, um, accidental or subconscious like the George Harrison. Sometimes it's on purpose, like when Vanilla Ice uh, stole the bass from Queen and, and David Bowie's Under Pressure. And, uh, you know, and, and sometimes they'll come out from and sometimes there'll be a lot of controversy. And some people will say, yep, it sounds really some people say it sounds exactly the same and the others say, no, no, they don't sound anything the same. And, and so it's going to be ongoing. And, and the problem with the Robin Thicke case is now it's expanded to even vibes of music. And so you're going to likely see more disputes in the future.
1: Right. So can you deal with it differently though? Like we were talking about Ed Sheeran uh, earlier, cause he he's very quick to give credit if he hears a similarity, is he not?
6: Yes. And similarly, uh, if you remember, there was uh, the, the Sam Smith song, Stay With Me, and Tom Petty made a claim against him, and he very quickly gave him credit, and they settled it very quickly.
1: So it is possible. And, is that and, the more careful way of dealing with it, I guess?
6: Well, I mean, um, that opens a different a different issue. I mean, for example, Vanilla Ice gave credit for Ice Ice Baby to Queen and David Bowie, but but the question is, you know, did they want to have credit on, on that, on that <laughs> song? You know, maybe it reflects badly on them. And, and so to say that the, the way it gets resolved is to say, give them credit, you know, is not necessarily the most ideal remedy for, for artists. Maybe they don't want to be associated with the song. Yeah. And then and then you have some really tragic cases like the verb, you know, against yes. uh, Rolling Stones. And, and Rolling Stones got 100% of the credit and all of the royalties. And, and, and uh, the, Song was ultimately used in a Nike commercial against the, you know, against the Verbs Witches, and it was nominated for Best Song Grammy. And Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were were the ones named on the ballot, so they they lost all of their rights because they sampled like some very small amount.
1: Yeah, can you recap that for us? Because a lot of people might not have heard that story, but I have, and it is it's really awful.
6: Yeah, the Verbe, um sampled a small portion of a Rolling Stones uh, song in their song. Uh, Bittersweet Symphony, and uh, they were negotiating for the rights to use it, and they were uh, n- uh, discussing a fifty percent of the royalty split. And um, the Rolling Stones pulled out of the negotiations, and the Verve was uh, 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 left with a decision that they had to make as to whether they pull the song and avoid infringement, or go ahead with the song because this was. Their internal, you know, artistic expression that they wanted to share with the world. They went ahead with choice number two and they shared it with the world and they found themselves on, you know, on the receiving end of, you know, of, of lawsuit from, and, uh, from the Rolling Stone and, and various other parties. And so the way it was ultimately resolved is that uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards received rights to 100% of the royalties and they were named as 100% as, as the uh, creator. And as I mentioned, they were, they were put on the ballot when it was nominated for Best Song and really, you know, really crushed the spirit of the verve. They, they, they got no money from the song, and they lost their, their sense of artistic integrity when it was used for a commercial. And it was a really very sad story. It was bitter, Bittersweet Symphony. It was a bittersweet. It was, no it was not even a sweet. It was a completely bitter story for them.
1: And it was. And like to think about all the times you've heard that song in the last 20 years and the money was going to the Rolling Stones. Didn't they recently try to correct this, though?
6: I don't know about that. I can look into that.
1: Yeah, I believe they actually did just just in the last couple of months talk about giving some of those rights back. But you're right. That is an extreme, extreme case here. So clearly there's no right or wrong or definitive way to figure this out, Oliver. Is it just roll the dice and see what you get with the jury?
6: I guess everyone, you know, uh, you have to move forward in life and everyone, you can't stop making music because you're afraid of being sued. So I think that what you said is actually right. You have to move forward and try to, you know, try your best. But uh, people can't stop making music. So they just have to do their best when they're on the receiving end of these lawsuits.
1: So true. Oliver, thank you for your time on this.
6: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I appreciate that. That's Oliver Hertzfeld, Senior Vice President and Chief Legal Officer for Beanstalk. They're a leading global brand licensing agency. Right now, though, let's talk about your non-meat-based burgers, because that is an area that is just exploding in popularity. Hard to believe it's only been about a year right now since a began offering customers a chance to check out their Beyond Meat burger. That has kicked off the craze. And now Beyond Meat products are being sold in more than 35,000 retail outlets. The company went from like you know being little known to being worth something like $14 billion. Yeah, billion with a B, US. And they were Wall Street's best performing IPO this year. But there might be some clouds on the horizon. For more on this, we're joined now by producer Claire Allen. And I know, Claire, you were a big fan when this first came out.
0: I loved it. And I still do love yeah, the Beyond good. Meat product. I think it's great. I um, was very interested when they started offering the product a year ago, and I went out there like thousands of other people and wanted to try it. And liked it. Exactly. And you know, it it was so successful that in the first three days of its launch, A&W sold 90,000 Beyond Meat burgers. Remember they sold out and they were like, if you want to try it and you didn't get a chance, we'll put you on a mailing list. A mailing list for a burger.
1: (laughs) It was great marketing for A&W as well. They hit it just at the right time because now it seems like fast food outlets are dividing themselves into two camps. Mm -hmm. One, it is the, we are getting on this non-meat-based bandwagon and then others like McDonald's and others are saying, "Yeah, we're just going to wait and see how this goes." Well,
0: McDonald's is in an interesting awkward position, which we'll get to later. But you're right. There are, there is a division between Offering Beyond Meat and not offering Beyond Meat. Right. So I spoke with Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. He is the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab in, at Dalhousie University. And as we, you stated, the company has done really, really well. It's yeah, $14 billion U.S. they got big backers like Bill Gates, a bunch of other celebrities. Sport, they have uh, athletes that are uh, spokespeople for the Beyond Meat products. But the company actually reported a $10 million loss in its second quarter. And so I asked Dr. Charlebois, why?
5: Beyond Meat is an 11-year-old startup. Uh, Let's face it, uh, it really started slow, uh, has built up over time, uh, got some uh, really interesting investors involved. Uh, A couple years ago, it it did expand in the U.S. and uh, had to uh, ramp up its production. It's a, it's been an amazing, uh, uh, execution, uh, with, with Me. They have signed some key partnerships with key players, uh, with Dunkin' Donuts in the U.S. and, and in Canada with Tim Wharton's. And, uh, and so they're, 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 they're relying on these partnerships to increase their sales. So losses in the first couple of quarters aren't necessarily, uh, a challenge for Beyond me. What What is a challenge? The fact that they are in the middle of a very divisive debate uh, around plant-based uh, proteins and uh, the meat sector.
1: Right, because now I'm seeing lots of stories, Claire, like Dr. Charlebaugh pointed out with pushback about, mm-hmm. yes, but is it really healthier for you? Because it's so processed.
0: Yes, and Dr. Charlebaugh and I spoke about that Processed doesn't always mean that it is unhealthy, he was telling me, and there are some really healthy processed foods out there, which sounds a little strange. Like, like, like an oxymoron yeah, exactly. almost. Yeah, But he said we shouldn't just shy away from it ultimately, like just be, because it's processed that we're not going to buy it. Um, but he said that one of the Beyond Meat's biggest issues is that it's fixation on replicating the taste and the texture of uh, natural meat products, and that is, has become the company's greatest weakness and I was, really yeah I was interested in that because I thought that's why people liked wanted it. it yeah exactly wanted to buy those products so I asked him what he meant by that
5: well I think a lot of people are, are starting to confuse both because of all of the rhetoric that we're hearing on both sides uh, especially around uh, environmental stewardship and uh, and health benefits uh right now a lot of the debate is is confusing people more so than anything else and, and that's not good for for beyond meat or even the meat industry um, for of course as part of their strategy their strategy was to really attract flexitarians and flexitarians are still attached to meat but also uh, there are some consumers out there who are wondering whether or not they should reduce the amount of, of meat they consume And so and that's why the Beyond Meat product is there. And they wanted that product really right next to the bloody stuff in the meat counter so people can have a choice. Um, But the problem right now that they're facing is that they're starting to be seen as a to product provider uh, because they're so obsessed in replicating what beef does, what chicken does, what pork does. At some point, and I know why they're doing it, of course, they just want to attract some attention, but down the road, they're going to have to start thinking about providing to the market a plant-based taste, and, because the market will mature. You'll, in, a, in a couple of years, and probably by the end of this year, uh, you're likely going to walk into your favorite grocery store, and there'll be a plant-based section. Like you're finding a produce section or a meat counter or a fish section. that's I think that's where we're going. And, and that section will have to offer something different than what's at the meat counter.
1: I've seen that. Mm-hmm. My grocery store has that. Which grocery store is that? Well, I go to Stong's. Oh, right. And they've got a... <laughs> she- <laughs> They're very progressive there. <laughs> yeah, that's why she said that. They are very progressive there. And they do have a little section that is all their veggie burgers and they have Beyond Meat and all that other yeah. stuff all in one little area there. Right, exactly.
0: So, I mean, he's saying that right now Beyond Meat is seen as like a meat they're trying to replicate the taste of meat, like it's like a. I don't know if I
1: need that though. Uh,
0: but he, he's saying that's what they're going for. They want like meat eaters to think like, oh, this is just like meat, instead of really being like we're a plant based company and and sort of pushing that
1: boundary further instead of being seen as like a meat, really good and tasty on its own, right? As opposed to we're good because we, we taste, taste like, like meat. meat,
0: exactly. That's
1: an interesting distinction.
0: So he's saying that that's how that's what that's where the company is going to need to go. In order to be uh, bigger and more profitable, and m- more profitable than fourteen billion, I don't know, but uh, good luck with, uh, that. with yeah, exactly. But uh, to become a bigger and better company. So, but what I thought was super fascinating is that in Canada, we've seen lots of companies offering Beyond Meat products on their menus. It started off with AW with yes. that big launch where it sold out, and then we have White Spot taking over. There's a bunch of other companies, uh, smaller companies that are offering the Beyond Meat patties, and recently we saw that Tim Hortons announced it would be offering a Beyond Meat burger on their uh, menu as well. So I assumed that these fast food restaurants had seen the success of Beyond Meat items at a and simply wanted to follow suit. Yeah. You know, like they were making a killing over there at a w because people Let's were do it. so burger excited. Burger King's doing it
1: too down exactly, in the States. Exactly, yeah. yes.
0: However, Dr. Charlebois told me that it's not about which companies are offering about meat, but it's about one huge company that is not. And that company is the Golden Arches, McDonald's.
5: I don't think Tim cares much about N.W., but they do care about McDonald's, and and they know what, what's going on in McDonald's. McDonald's is in a very awkward position right now. Um, McDonald's, for decades, has um, has uh, made itself a, a key ambassador to to, to Canadian beef, and, and in fact, they've actually invested in the Canadian Roundtable for Sustainable Beef back in 2016 to redefine. The value uh, of of beef and, and and make it more sustainable uh, to counter this plant based uh, invasion. Uh, so for them to decide to uh, adopt beyond meat would be would be awkward. Of course, it may, it would go against uh, uh, their own customer base, and and that's why I think McDonald's is still. Uh, remains on the sideline, I'd be shocked if they decide to go ahead. And, and frankly, when you look at Beyond Meat, even if McDonald's decides to go ahead with Beyond Meat, Beyond Meat couldn't deliver. It's not big enough, because McDonald's is way, way too big. Uh, keep in mind that McDonald's in Canada, in terms of sales and the number of outlets, is nine times bigger than nine other competitors combined together, uh, from number two to number ten. So McDonald's is a huge player. And typically, when you see trends like this, often McDonald's will set the tone and everyone else will follow. This time around, uh, A&W uh, decided to go ahead uh, to become the ambassador to plant-based dieting. And uh, and then Tim Hortons followed suit a few months ago.
1: That number was unreal. So mm-hmm. he's saying that McDonald's is nine times bigger than all of the competitors put together. Yeah. So what company could possibly even provide them with enough product?
0: Surprisingly, not Beyond Meat, uh, because they're just no, simply barely holding on to it. Yeah. Exactly. So I asked uh, Dr. Charlebaugh, what can McDonald's do in order not to fall behind on this plant-based movement?
5: Uh, it's, an, it's an interesting question. Um, the, the veggie burger back in 2003, I believe, was a, was a failure by design. I don't think they were, that that McDonald's was interesting, interested in making the veggie burger a success, just because of their affiliation with uh, with the cattle industry. Uh, this time around, it, it's a tough one for McDonald's. Uh, I actually have no idea what, what kind of advice I would give them, other than perhaps wait until the market matures, because right now there are, there are a lot of things in flux. Uh, Beyond Meat is doing something that I was expecting, say, five years from now. Not now. I mean, it's happening way too fast and, and you're seeing more and more companies coming on stream. Depending on how Beyond Meat's allure is affected by, by this debate, uh, I suspect that at some point, McDonald's will want to uh, reevaluate its position. For example, if there is a Canadian player coming on stream uh, that would have the capacity to supply all of the restaurants in Canada, maybe that could be an opportunity for McDonald's to move forward.
1: So essentially, they're kind of hooped on this because there's no company that can provide that. Even if they wanted to go into this area, no company can provide them with enough product.
0: That's right. And let's say they develop their own, which I said, yeah, I thought that's not a bad idea. Yeah. But what if it's not as good as what we're used to, which is the Beyond Meat Burger? They, they're they kind of hooped. It's very yeah. awkward because they've aligned themselves with real beef and the cattle so industry. Then now they don't have, there's no one that can supply them with a plant-based burger because Beyond Meat's not big enough. If they create their own, it may not be as good as Beyond Meat. So if they're really in a, a little bit of a pickle there. So... When I asked um, Dr. Charlebois about what Beyond Meat can do to continue its success, he said that they need to create additional products like alternatives to chicken, fish, and pork, which they don't have yet. Uh, They need to stop dividing people and challenging people who still do like to eat meat because 91% of the Canadian population eats meat at least once a week. And most importantly, though, he said the cost for Beyond Meat products when you buy them in your grocery store need to come down because right now they're still seen as a premium product and sometimes more expensive than actual meat
1: product. So interesting, Claire, thank you. Thanks, Simi. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.